I, I have to admit, I am on social media to promote myself. <laughs> and social media, in the context of Dear Evan Hansen, definitely makes people into that kind of crowd. It's very possible in our society to live in a kind of world where you have the illusion of community without ever being in any kind of real community. Most of my family is really far away, and I interact with them through social media. That's real community. There are no new words under the sun There are no new notes I have left to hum There are no new rhymes yet to be sung There are no new chords that strings haven't strummed Hello and welcome to another episode of Unreliable Narrators where we discuss media, literature, and the arts and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. I'm Raymond Docapel. And I'm Sophie Klomperens. Hi Sophie, how are you doing? I'm pretty good. It's been a while since we recorded. Uh, yes, long time no see. So, uh, just, just wanted to catch up with you since, since we haven't talked in <laughs> so long. Um, I wonder if anyone missed us when we didn't release on the day we were supposed to release. I wonder if literally a single person thought, huh, this is release day for unreliable narrators. I, Where are they? I don't know. I missed us. I missed the sound of I our voice. <laughs> At least two people yeah. missed our episode on release day, and it's us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've been writing like... Uh, three 20-page paper. Not like three 20-page papers. I have been writing three 20-page papers. So, um... Uh, yeah, I've, you have an excuse. I've been in a, in a different world for a while. But anyway, we're going to be talking about two things today. First is a piece of art called Nobody Likes Me by iHeart. And the second is uh, a, Netflix, a Netflix show, The Social Dilemma, which was released in 2020. And I think both of them are extremely relevant. They're they're both irrelevant. They're both relevant and irrelevant at the same time. Because the funny thing about the the state of the world is that today is that things change so quickly that you know something that came out in twenty twenty it was like forever ago. Um, it's true. Things get outdated rather quick. Um, so did this come out pre or post? pandemic lockdowns it came out during pandemic lockdowns which is okay that's appropriate yeah it was very interesting because i guess it was aiming to provide some kind of commentary on the situation in a way mm -hmm. that was trying to be i guess apolitical or centrist in some way and i think it mm. succeeded at least to some degree and and in some way it and in some other ways it maybe maybe it didn't, um, but it's also sure. very difficult for you to do that um, in in our current our current state of affairs. The other interesting <laughs> thing about it is that is that um, is that it was bringing up a a dilemma, the social dilemma that people have been talking about for a very long time, and. I thought it was a little bit strange, actually, the fact that this was being carted out as some like, hello, guys, we just discovered that social media is a problem. Um, yeah. We need to get off social media now. Look at what's going on here. Um, but they put it in a kind of a, a slightly fresh angle. 
But before we jump into that, let's talk about iHeart and and this little piece of art. What are we actually talking about here? Yeah, so iHeart, Nobody Likes Me, it's a painting. I will do my best to describe it using all the techniques that we were taught by Anna Mason (laughs) in (laughs) uh, the Four Gospel Frontispieces episode. So it's a painting of a sort of stylized little boy he looks like he's maybe seven eight something like that um he's standing in front of a very plain concrete looking background that's sort of textured like uh like concrete cinder block um he looks kind of cartoonish he's very painted in dramatic strokes there are really strong shadows on his face and he is holding a phone in his right hand And he looks like he's screaming. He's sort of looking up and he looks like he's maybe mid-scream. But it looks sort of like a petulant child upset screaming. It doesn't look like he's in pain, really. It looks like he's just kind of angry. Um, And there's a little bubble, like a speech bubble coming out of the top of his head. Um, But it's like a... It's a speech bubble that looks kind of like a text bubble. Like if you were receiving a text message. Um, the color of the inside of the text bubble is red, and on the left side, you see a little speech bubble, like a comment logo, and next to that it says zero. In the middle, there's a heart, and it says zero, and then a little icon, like a follower, and it says zero. So, like, no comments, no likes, no followers. Uh, so, pretty straightforward image. It's just this kid in the middle. He's kind of small. He doesn't even take up that much of the 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 painting which is a square um it's very simplistic he's just there he has his phone he has no comments he has no likes he has no followers and he's upset about it and he's screaming it's very clever actually that the way that the artist is able to depict the fact that the word like at least in the tension with the image has two meanings to it i mean we all know Mm -hmm. what nobody likes me means in common parlance but when social media was introduced to 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 the modern world, the word like, I mean, it was imported, right? But the word like took on a different meaning. Like was a number. Like was something on a grid. Like was uh, a way for you to measure one's popularity and status in a very, very tangible way, in, in a very mathematical way. Um that previously didn't have that kind of precision. It's like people like you or they don't like you. You know, you're you're popular or you're not popular. But now it's like you could prove it. You know, 40 people liked my status. Um, and, and also friend turned into a verb, right? So it's like I'm going to mm-hmm. friend you. So the language about the way we talk about friendships and companionship and the way we like each other and what liking someone actually means um, changed. It changed, but also it didn't change because we're still human beings, but we're living in an environment that is maybe maybe less natural than or maybe a simulation of a human community that isn't quite the same thing. So I guess probably... For me, the obvious message is that, you know, like, we are all that little kid just screaming, trying to get the likes, mm-hmm. the buttons. 
But what else is going on there? Do you see any other deeper meanings in that or deeper insights? Uh, how does the art piece speak to you? Um, yeah, I agree with everything you just said. The couple other things that are popping out to me here is I'm just kind of staring at this picture, which <laughs> we've learned by now is the way to say anything about art, apparently, is just to sit and stare at the painting. Um, it strikes me that he's in front of, like, a cinder block wall, and it seems like he could just go somewhere where there are actual people. Like, he's not in a very interesting place, and there aren't people around him. And he has legs, he could walk, he could go somewhere else, but instead he's in this really dismal-looking kind of concrete jungle with nothing interesting around him. And he's fixated on the fact that he doesn't have likes or friends or comments or whatever. But he could just leave, like, he could go find normal people, he could find actual people who are going to be his friends. And instead he's fixated on the lack of followers and likes and things like that. He's fixated on the social media. So that's interesting to me. And I think that that's a real thing, trying to find a distinction between your real friends or the real world and real people and then social media. But the other thing that strikes me is that I've never met sort of what you were saying about this isn't a new problem, (laughs) a documentary coming out in 2020. Look, social media is a big problem, and we're all like, yeah, we knew, we we were aware of that. Um, the fact that we all, I've never met anyone who's like, yeah, social media is super healthy, it's really great, I always feel better after using social media, but most people I know are on social media anyway, so it's a thing that we all agree is really not that great for you, and yet we're using it anyway, and the documentary, The Social Dilemma, which we're not talking about yet, but we'll get there, makes the comparison of social media being addictive and compares that to a drug. And so I guess if you were going to take that comparison further, it's a little bit like if everybody in the United States was addicted to heroin or something and everybody knew that heroin was really bad for you and we could all have deep conversations about how bad heroin is for you. But we're all still using heroin, (laughs) which is such a weird thought and that seems ridiculous and I am I am going to have some positive things to say about social media, too. I don't actually think that social media is equivalent to heroin. But if we're going to say it's addictive, and if we're going to say it has lots of similarities to a drug, then there's something in that comparison, I think. Why does everyone know that it's like this? We all look at this image and we're like, yep, this is kind of what social media is. But we still use it. We still don't get off of it. Well, I don't know. Actually, are you on social media anymore? Yeah, well, I know you are. Yes. I am on Instagram solely to promote my podcast and myself. <laughs> I, I have to admit, I, I am on social media to promote myself. I mean, what other Shameless reason? Shameless self-promotion. What, what else? Why else would I be on there? Um, but, Great uh, point. Uh, but anyway, actually, what we were, you were saying is is quite relevant to the way they talked about this issue to begin with. Because, okay, so let's talk about how this opens up. There were a number of people who were interviewed throughout the documentary. I want to focus particularly on Tristan Harris, because Tristan Harris, who was a Google design ethicist, um, kind of sparked the discussion. And he's the person who's featured at the beginning of the documentary. And... 
a Google divine, uh, a Google design ethicist. It's like, what is that? He he's actually he was actually called Google's quote unquote moral compass or something like that. Um, and anyway, the reason why this whole discussion got started is because he was he was responsible for for uh, uh, um, designing Gmail. They also interviewed the person who designed the like button, which I thought was very interesting. But Tristan Harris was was responsible for designing the interface of Gmail, and because he was so involved in the process of creating it, he was beginning to notice that there were a lot of things about the way people talked about the design and the sort of features that they integrated in it, integrated into the design that was deliberately designed, no surprise to anyone, to keep people on Gmail for as long as possible. And he thought this is a real, a real problem, specifically because he realized he was addicted to Gmail and he was addicted <laughs> to emails. And so he was basically a, a victim of his own trap. So what did he do but write an email to all the employees at Google voicing his concerns about the way Gmail was designed. And he got instantaneous response. It was a huge response. Everybody was like, yes, this is exactly how I feel. This is how I feel about, I don't want to give my, I don't want to expose my kids to Gmail. I don't want anyone to be, uh, you know, I, I'm having this problem too. It was this huge buzz of discussion about like, we need to do something about it. And then, as Tristan Harris related, nothing happened. There was a big buzz, and then nothing happened. Which, ironically, was kind of what this documentary ended up being. It was a big buzz, and then nothing happened. Which is, I mean, like, that's our, all our discussions about social media are like that. Like, what are we going to do about this? And then nothing happens. Um, yep. Okay, but how exactly does it work? How exactly does this nefarious scheme to keep us addiction keep to keep us addicted to social media work and as Tristan Harris outlines these were three goals that were explicitly talked about in meetings at Google there were three goals they weren't it wasn't anything that they were hiding here the first one was the engagement goal that was to increase usage, and make sure users continue scrolling. The second was the growth goal, to ensure users are coming back and inviting friends that invite even more friends. And thirdly, the advertisement goal, to make sure that while the above two goals are happening, the companies are also making as much po money as possible from advertisements. And it's so ironic that people are called users on social media because they are definitely the ones being used. And the, f the, <laughs> the famous, the famous uh, I think it's almost become a cliche at this point, to say that if you're not paying for the product, you are the product, right? Mm -hmm. um, okay, so it's specifically designed to be addictive. In what ways could you say, what are some specific examples that immediately come to your mind that 
social media you see in the in the experience of being on social media that you could say that's probably a deliberate design like this is what they're actually trying to do sure well a couple things big thing that stands out to me is the fact that if you're scrolling through twitter or instagram um the longer that you pause on something and look at it the more likely you are to get something similar to that popping up in your feed again. Um, So it's not even just a matter of what you click on or what you like. It's a matter of if you linger so that the app can tell that you're reading, it's going to give you something that's similar to that later. Um, And it can be really hard to stop seeing something, even if you stopped because you were kind of horrified (laughs) or because... You were you were shocked by something, but you don't actually want to see that thing. It'll keep coming back, and you keep having the same horrified or shocked reaction, and so you keep stopping to read it, and so you get more and more things like that. Um, right, because they don't I care especially... about whether it's negative emotion or positive emotion as long as you are on for as long as possible. Yeah, and I um, Hank Green has an interesting podcast with his wife, Catherine, and the podcast is called Delete This, and... Every week. It's a it's a funny concept for a podcast because it's mostly unedited. It's just them sitting having a conversation. And it's them talking about Hank Green's Twitter account. And Catherine, Hank's wife, wants him to delete his Twitter and is very vocal about this. And Hank agrees, yeah, Twitter is bad for me and is probably bad for the world and I should just get off it. But he never does. So every week they have a podcast where he goes over his tweets from the previous week and he says this this one was bad for this reason and this one was bad for this reason and I can see that uh, I had a ne- negative impact in this way. And she's like, well then why don't you delete your Twitter? And he's like, yeah, I should. And then they come back the next week and they do it again. So like that's just another example of how someone can be so self-aware of the fact that Twitter is just showing him things to shock him, showing him things to make him be angry. And then he gets angry and he responds to those things and he feels like he's having an impact, but he knows that he's not actually having an impact. And he talks on this podcast about how he knows that he's not having an impact, but he goes back and he does it anyway. Well, because at least you feel like you're having an impact, right? Yeah. The happy chemicals are firing. The happy chemicals are firing. And I mean, I think that that is also, that's also part of the, the way the social engineers have designed this. They totally understand what it is like to be a human being. They understand what human beings need. They understand what human beings want. And what they have done is they have taken desire and put it onto a grid, right? So, and when you put desire onto a grid, it can become extremely powerful. In fact, maybe even preferable to something that's not on a grid. And you were, like you were talking about earlier, like um, someone might prefer to go back on social media where they say, you know, 307 people liked my post, even if you were a really popular person in real life, the the number 307 is somehow so much more satisfying because it's so tangible, you know? It's like, it's proof, almost. 
It's proof mm-hmm. that I'm a popular person rather than, you know, if you're not, if you don't have all of that number to sort of like really solidify and sanction your popularity, then you can always, you can always have be be haunted by the lurking suspicion that maybe there's somebody in the crowd that that isn't really liking you or doesn't really like you or isn't really cheering for you somehow you can mm-hmm. convince yourself that this is real and this is tangible and that I'm popular and 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 it kind of contains it yeah i also think i i want to point out something being addictive isn't inherently a bad thing no no not... we have talked about this before right because it means add yeah. a cherry which is religious devotion yep yep so I I think that a common fallacy that's made is that someone will provide evidence that social media is addictive and then go, well, it's terrible. That's the end of it, (laughs) right? No more argument needs to be had. But that's not true. There are all sorts of things that can be addictive and can make your brain respond in the same way that it would respond to a hard drug. And it can be totally fine. It can be a good thing. Um... And I, I just think that it's important to close the argument. Right. Like the fact that chemicals fire in your brain because you do certain things doesn't necessarily mean that it's a problem because your chemicals are firing in your brain all the time, no matter what you do. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, oh, chemicals are firing. This thing causes chemicals to fire in your brain. Therefore, it's a drug. I mean, like, well, no, having fun is a drug because the chemicals fire in your brain. If that's if that's what you mean. Uh, yeah, you know, exactly. Roller coasters, that's a drug. Chemicals fire in your brain, but that happens. Thinking is a drug because <laughs> chemicals are firing in your brain. So it, 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 we do tend to talk about it in a way that, that I mean, the fact that we talk about chemicals all the time, um, mm-hmm. I, I think, makes us think about human beings as if we are just a bag of chemicals, Um but 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 I mean the the problem still stands. I mean it's very clear that this is this is unhealthy. I mean so the question is is like is there actually a scenario in which this can be healthy? I mean you can ostensibly like let's say have a healthy relationship with drinking coffee in a way that's not uh, destructive to you. Um, is there a possible? Is it possible for you to have a healthy relationship? with social media yeah i don't know um it's an important question obviously right because i mean here's how i feel about it because um i mean you can say all right social media is merely a tool it can be used for good or for ill and i'm sure there's self-disciplined people who can who can manage it better than i can but the very fact i mean look companies have to make money that's not necessarily an evil thing but a company that is designed to make money based on manipulating human desires and human futures that's the that's the phrase that they use in the social dilemma the commodity is human futures um hmm. can they really avoid creating an unhealthy environment you know i mean in some sense it's not their fault it's like well they have to make money somehow um, and it's not the user's fault, but still, I mean, even if you 
acknowledge all of those realities, it still seems like it comes out as an unhealthy relationship that that's just inherently unhealthy. I do think that part of the issue is if you try to paint with too broad of a brush and say that everyone reacts to everything in the exact same way. Because one thing that I think is true is that I think people who didn't grow up with social media find it easier to have a healthy relationship with social media because they will have like a Facebook account and log on to the Facebook account and check what's going on and see what their friends are doing, look at some pictures, maybe they'll post every now and then, whatever, and then they'll be done. They're cool. <laughs> they don't get hooked on it as easily. Uh, presumably because of something involving brain chemistry, they didn't grow up that way so it's easier for them to just like let it be and i would have i would have a hard time saying that facebook is bad for like my grandparents or something i actually this is sort of tangential but i think it's really funny my grandpa um <laughs> he <laughs> one time so he has an iphone and on, his, on your iPhone, you know how it tells you your screen time? Like, the mm -hmm. amount of time that you spend on your screen every week? Mm -hmm. So, he one time got a notification that told him, last week, you spent an average of one minute per day on your device. And he immediately was like, oh, I gotta get that down. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> and he was like, I don't want to have an average of any time on my device. <laughs> Which yeah. is so funny in comparison to everyone else. But anyway, like to say that he has an unhealthy relationship with social media would be ridiculous when he's on Facebook Messenger and he uses it to post his daily Wordle. And that's all he does. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's one thing is I think different people respond differently. And I also do think that some people respond differently to the social pressure of wanting to look a certain way. Or wanting to have a particular appearance. Um, some people are more interested in their optics than other people are. And obviously there's social media for everyone. Like if you're really interested in images, Instagram is your place. If you're more interested in connections or likes or followers, like there are other places to go. If it's content that you're mostly interested in, TikTok can give you hours and hours and hours and hours of content. So... There's something for everyone in terms of there's something for everyone to get addicted to. But well, re I guess Reddit was what came to my mind more if when you, when you mentioned content. But mm, I guess Yeah, true. I mean, but that's not that's text as opposed to images, like, you know, mm -hmm. discussions, forums, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um and I guess I don't know, like it's hard it's hard for me to paint with so general a brush as to say social media is a negative thing for everybody for xyz reasons when i think people respond differently to different kinds of social media and that different kinds of social media are positive and or negative to different people in different ways like i just don't think it's the same for everyone mm -hmm. that's true but i guess um I guess what the point of the of the uh, 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 of the documentary was and the art piece is not to say that 
there aren't any there isn't anyone who doesn't have a healthy relationship with social media um because obviously there are there are people for whom it is not an issue but on the large scale on the massive scale in the present situation there are more people who are um mentally ill and depressed as a result of becoming ensnared by social media than people who are not. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is, there is a dilemma. And I think that that's probably, that's probably what they're focusing on. It's like, you know, not that you can't have a good relationship, but that maybe there is something going on here behind the people who are making this that is uh, designed to, to manipulate large numbers of people. Um, mm-hmm. and so that's why it comes back to like the, uh, the unresolvable ethical dilemma. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit actually by, about the, the movie, the social network. I don't think I, I've talked about this to you before, but you haven't seen it, right? Yeah, that's right. No, yeah. The, yeah. The, the, so the social network was a movie was written by Aaron Sorkin, who's one of my favorite LA screenwriters. And it, uh, it was about, Mark Zuckerberg, played by Jesse Eisenberg, and his friend, who was played by Andrew Garfield. And it's very obvious because Aaron Sorkin is very famous for mythologizing and, and dramatizing real stories to a somewhat ridiculous degree. Um, mm-hmm. So obviously it's not totally historically accurate. Um, but I think that it was really good in the way that they captured the basic spirit of things and maybe maybe it wasn't maybe it's like over dramatizing things maybe we're ascribing too much power to social media that it doesn't have but this is the way they set it up the way they set it up is um and actually i think this part of the story is true that mark zuckerberg was designing initially st- uh, designed the social platform as kind of oh as a way to uh rate the hotness of his female classmates um and then they come up with this whole and then they basically they go through the the whole series of how they designed various things and the way they present Mark Zuckerberg is in a fairly negative light as someone who is basically obsessed with status totally dominated by envy and designing a platform that would satisfy his vices and give him a place for him to thrive being a narcissist. Um, Hmm. Which I mean, I mean, you kind of think, you know, Steve Jobs was a narcissist too. And he made the iPhone and it's like, uh, you know, it kind of makes sense because he wanted to make a a device that centered around him. And that's exactly what the iPhone is. You know, it serves you. Um, And so, yeah, it does take a little bit of a narcissist's mind in order to make something like Facebook or 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 the iPhone. Um, so I guess the takeaway that I got from watching The Social Network is that this was a platform that was um, designed, that was driven by vice. It was driven by mm-hmm. greed and envy about wanting to be a part of a, a social circle and then making something that promises to satiate that, um, which I think is part of what makes it so powerful. Um, and then of course they become 
both uh, uh, Eisenberg's character, uh, uh, Zuckerberg and, and, and uh, Garfield's character uh, become totally ensnared by, by their, own, their own traps, which is, of course, again, the same, the same old story. So, yeah. So, I mean, maybe there's over-dramatization here. Maybe this is like, you know, maybe this is just us. Maybe we're the ones who are, who are looking at social media and blaming our own weaknesses on social media as being the cause of our problems. Or do you think um, there's something else going on here? I guess the first thing I would say to that is it seems like if everyone were angelic, if everyone were perfect, I'm not sure whether that would mean there would be no social media or that everyone would use social media perfectly. It seems like it has to be one of those two and I'm actually not sure which one it is. Because on the one hand, I can think of lots of good uses of social media. Um, For example, I mean, a really simple one is uh, a lot of the way that people know about this podcast (laughs) Most of the reason that anybody is listening right now is because of social media, right? If not for that, nobody would have ever heard of this. <laughs> nobody would be listening. So hopefully that's a positive thing. <laughs> hopefully that's a good thing. Um, and then things like there are uh, collaborative works of art that are made because people are able to connect over the internet because they're able to communicate even if they're not exactly in the same location and that kind of collaboration I think is really positive. So that seems like a benefit to the world and that seems like a good thing. So if everyone were perfect, is that what we would have? Like would we have social media that is used for creation, for building things, instead of for wasting time because i think that's the main thing like when i when i feel worst about social media usage is when i feel like i am just wasting time i'm doing something that isn't creating anything it's just spending that time and i don't even feel better i don't even like i'm not even necessarily enjoying it it's just eating time and that's the only thing that it is that's the thing that it's there to do the times that i feel best about social media usage is when I come out of it and I actually have something to say about it. Either I feel like I've created something or I've had a new thought or even that I've watched something that I thought was um, entertaining or interesting or worthy of consumption like a movie would be. Um, And I feel very differently about those two experiences, but I've had both of them on social media. And so I just don't know how to reconcile those things. Do, do you want to talk about um, Dear Evan Hansen at all? Because I feel mm-hmm. like that is definitely a interesting, a relevant piece of art that seems to be portraying social media as being something curative, something that can, that can help and benefit people. Um, but also if I, I haven't actually seen the show, but as I understand it, um, there's also kind of a bit of a plot twist in there about halfway. Yeah. So Evan Hansen in the musical Dear Evan Hansen, which is a 2015 Broadway release. Um, he is a very socially awkward, um, 
probably, you know, he's somewhere on the autism spectrum. And the, the show doesn't talk about that very much. Um, he's just depicted that way. So he has a huge, he has a stutter. He has a huge tr- problem talking to other people at school. He doesn't have any friends. And he meets um, someone named Connor Murphy in the, in school one day as Evan is writing, because his, his therapist told him to write letters to himself. Um, and so, to help him feel better. So, he's writing this letter to himself. It starts, Dear Evan Hansen, this guy, Connor Murphy, who's, like, this druggie. He's a terrible person. He's rude to his family. He also doesn't have any friends. He finds Evan's letter to himself and he steals it. And then the unfortunate thing is that the next day, Connor Murphy commits suicide. And the letter that Dear Evan Hansen, that, that Evan wrote to himself, that starts Dear Evan Hansen, is in Connor's pocket. And so everyone thinks that Connor wrote his suicide note to Evan. So suddenly everyone's paying attention to Evan. And so he pretends that he was friends with Connor, even though he actually wasn't. And the way that social media plays into it um, is that Evan makes a speech at a memorial service thing at their school for Connor and the speech is really powerful and it they someone films it and they put it on the internet and it goes viral and suddenly everybody's talking about um suicide awareness and depression and all these things and it's really an uplifting speech and everybody is responding really positively to Evan for the first time in his life but then also it's like healing people's relationships and the video is really powerful um, and that seems like a really positive thing. And then a little bit later, toward the end of the show, through various circumstances that I'm not going to get into, the same, it's revealed. Everyone finds out that um, some bad things about Connor's family, <laughs> about the Murphys. That isn't true, right? It's really incomplete. It's a um, caricature of what actually happened, but then they're all hating Connor's family, who Evan has become really close to, and so the same crowd that was really positive and uplifting with Evan suddenly turns on this really good family. Um, And it's all because of social media, right? It's all because of Evan. And it's really, the show portrays the crowd as fickle. (laughs) They're like the, the crowd in Julius Caesar, where Brutus speaks, and they're all on the conspirator side, and they're like, yeah, Caesar was a tyrant. It's good that we got rid of him. And then Antony goes up and talks, and then within minutes, they're all wanting to go burn everything down and kill the conspirators. And social media, at least in the context of Dear Evan Hansen, and I think this is probably true, definitely makes people into that kind of crowd, where they respond emotionally without all the evidence. And sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that is positive and, you know, we get better awareness of big issues and it heals relationships and it brings people together. And sometimes it makes people jump to conclusions and be divisive and attack people where they don't have any right to attack them. And it does both those things. Well, it seems that also that that, that, that that there's a little bit of an ambiguous commentary here going on where it's showing, 
look, look at all these people. They're, they're having more awareness about suicide and having conversations about this. And it's, and that's a good thing. Like maybe the, the musical is seems to be presenting it at least initially, like this is a good thing that's happening. And then it turns out the whole story was made up. So then Mm -hmm. you have the question of like, well, is it a good thing that we have this, um, that, that people have these conversations, even if it's based on false evidence. And then like, then we get into really tricky territory about like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, does it really matter, you know, whether we, um, wh- whether do facts matter? Do we, does it actually matter that we're telling the truth? Because what if there is something that's true, like in the case of Connor's family, an element of the truth that is actually true that just gets disseminated in social media. And now it's having the opposite effect that's actually self-destructive and What's so interesting about that is that the thing that was having a positive effect was based on a totally made up story. And the thing that was having a negative effect was based on actual facts from reality. And then mm-hmm. it's saying, well, you know, maybe it's better that w- w- the the former story is better than the latter. Or, I mean, is that the commentary that's going on there? Um, I don't really know. Well, I think it's important that Evan's speech that goes viral is only kind of tangentially about Connor. And so it's what you're saying is true. And it's really interesting because he gets to the place, like he, he's able to make this speech. He's invited to speak because he's supposed to be Connor's friend. Right. And he wasn't actually Connor's friend. So his, the thing that allows him to make the speech is based on a lie. But what the speech is actually about is just about loneliness and about being alone and then trusting that there is hope for you. Um, and all that's true, right? That's, it's, it's a true message. And the message itself actually isn't based on the fact that he was Connor's friend. Um, so, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like the, the message is, it is both things. It is both positive and it is negative. And the exact same people who respond positively to the video respond negatively and in a reactionary manner to the, like, slight misinformation with a little grain of truth about Connor's family. And they just, they do both things. Right, right. The tendency for people to be mass manipulated has always existed and now we just have a different place a different tool a different setting for that for that sort of thing to happen um Mm -hmm. but i mean i guess what this comes down to and um and what has been kind of the theme of the whole discussion is that the fact that people want to be part of a group maybe that isn't even necessarily a bad thing i mean because Mm -hmm. That's another thing is that we always say like, well, you know, this is group mentality. You're part of a group that you're, you're being mass manipulated. You're all being um, united under some kind of narrative. And I mean, that's an ideology, really. And we talk about ideologies like, I mean, Peterson talks about ideologies as being basically bad things. I mean, anything that's an ideology is a bad thing. Well, what is an ideology exactly? It's a story. It's a story that a lot of people can get behind. All right. Mm-hmm. So like... 
Is that a bad thing? Like, it seems like, is there any way for you to not have an ideology? Is there any other? Because, like, you know, there's there's no way for you to to not have a story. I mean, like, that's, I mean, yeah, the, the single story, right? The single story is dangerous, but it's like, if you don't have a story that can unite people, then, then, um... You can't, nobody can actually accomplish anything together. I mean, that's kind of what the definition of a community is. I mean, the reason why, how do you meet someone, right? You say there's a time, there's a place, and there's a thing that we're going to do, right? That's a single story. And we're all going to put aside all of our differences, all the other things that we want to do, all the other things that we are, so that we can meet at that time and that place and live out that thing. Mm-hmm. Well, Plus, I think I think it's so hard to get away from the other thing that keeps coming up is how much of a double-edged sword it is and has to be. Like, for example, and it's so hard to narrow down, like, what even is social media to be able to parse out what's positive and what's negative. Like, for example, you are in North Carolina and I am in Michigan and we're only able to have conversations and maintain a friendship because... Of things like, um, like messaging apps and Zoom and all of these different uh, facets of the internet that allow us to interact. And without those things, like that wouldn't exist. We just wouldn't interact. Um, and that's true, like of the fact that most of my family is really far away, and I interact with them through social media. Um, and those things seem pretty unequivocally positive <laughs> and the, that's real community um but then like any interactions that i have on social media with people i've never met <laughs> if i'm reading something like if i'm scrolling through reddit and i'm reading interesting things that other people have written about their lives how different is that from me reading a book that's written by someone else saying something about their own lives where does it cross the threshold and become something negative? And it feels like those things are really hard to extricate. Like, that in order to have positive elements of community with people who don't live in your immediate vicinity, you maybe there are negative consequences that you have to accept. Or do you? <laughs> do you have to accept them? That's the thing I don't know. Right, right. Well, it's interesting you bring up books, too, because, I mean, books are fundamentally, at least psychologically, they're kind of the same thing. You are interacting with a person, with, the, with writings of a person that you've never met before, and it can actually become unhealthy. It can be very, reading can be unhealthy. You can read, you can read the wrong books, you can read bad books, you can come up with the wrong conclusions from reading books. Um, but I think maybe... One of the difference, at least from books and social media, is that at least with a book, you kind of have to spend some time. You have to work um, before you jump to a conclusion. It's like you can't just read the first sentence of Dostoevsky and be like, oh, yeah, I know what Dostoevsky's about, right? You have to wrestle mm -hmm. with them for 300, 400 pages. Um, and then before you really realize what he's what he's doing. Um, so... So yeah, and, and and but it also just comes back to the fact that like it can be healthy if the fact that if if the community that you already had to begin with was already real, um, mm -hmm. and if it if it wasn't real, then really the number the number of people who like you, that's kind of all you have. That 
those are the, the that number is the number of people of like you and if and if you kind of live live in a world and it's very possible i guess in our society to live in a kind of world where you have the illusion of community without ever being in any kind of real community and mm-hmm. what social media does is that it makes it possible for you to do that um i guess here's the thing is that like if we did not have social media, if people wanted to have community and everybody wants to have community, they would have no choice but to seek real relationships. Like they would mm-hmm. just have to do that um, or just be alone. Um, but now, if you have real communities, social media is not necessarily a bad thing because it just kind of supplements that. But once, but the fact that it exists makes it possible for you to kind of live in this in-between world where you don't have community and you don't have to seek it out mm-hmm. because you can live in the illusion that you have it. Yeah. I think that um, one other nuance maybe that I want to point out there is I'm not entirely convinced that it's the social part of social media that is the problem. Because I was just thinking about TikTok. And, like, what is TikTok but YouTube with shorter videos and an algorithm that gives you more of what you like, right? So it's hard. It's addictive, 100%. Like, it's hard to get off of. But I was just thinking about, because I have a TikTok account, I don't have very much time to be on it, which is a good thing. So my TikTok time is very, very limited. But the thing that makes TikTok most redemptive to me and the reason I still have it is because my sister Trinity sends me videos on TikTok. And when I see something that I think is funny and that she would like, I send it to her. And so the the part of TikTok that is the reason I have it and the thing that is best about it is the fact that it is a connection between me and my sister and she sometimes because she's really busy at school and I'm really busy and so when I have time to call her she doesn't always have time to answer (laughs) and when she has time to call me I don't always have time to answer and so sometimes literally the way that we interact is by sending two or three videos that the other person is going to think is funny and it's like being in the room with her and being able to Like, I can hear her laughing at it because I know the kinds of things that she laughs at. Um, So it's the social part of TikTok, actually, that makes it worth it or makes it positive, that makes it redemptive. And I wonder if maybe the trouble with social media isn't actually the social part, for the most part. It's the the machine part. (laughs) It's the algorithm part. It's the we need you to keep scrolling part. Or we need you to not interact with people. Because I don't almost ever regret interactions that I have with people on social media that are actual people that I know. And the times where I feel bad about social media are the times where it's random faceless strangers who aren't even saying anything interesting. (laughs) And I'm just still scrolling. That was a, that's a lot of like interesting thoughts. And I think to, to really kind of tie things all together, I mean, as we are the Mars Hill podcast, we got to talk about, uh, Christianity. And I think that also that this, um, 
there's definitely, I feel like this is definitely extremely relevant because um, community is something that is considered to be probably one of the most important parts of the Christian life. Um, and, and what I think is so interesting about the idea of community and the idea of Christian community is that um, it's such a basic human thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also, it's always, it's always associated with, in some way, having a meal with somebody, eating something with someone. Um, I mean, that's where we get like communion from. And you know, what's so interesting actually about the word company, uh, it comes from calm, which is with and panem, which mm-hmm. is bread. A company is actually with bread. And that's the same word where we get companion from companion is someone that you break bread with so there really is a connection here i mean between community community and eating together which i think is i know that sounds like it's totally out of left field but it's not really out of left field and i think that's also something about social media that we just don't have right um because no matter how close it may simulate the social environment you just can't eat with another person um, that's the, the tangibility that is so essential to having a community. Um, but that's also, but I think that it's so important and, and, and so interesting that this, there's this emphasis on eating food because I mean, that's precisely what communion is. And, um, and I don't know whether you and I, we may have different views. I don't know, um, um, on exactly the significance of communion. I, obviously it's been debated and there's a lot of different persuasions about what it, essentially means but i mean it is also a kind of vicarious experience in some way that in the same way that social media is a vicarious experience because jesus says this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me do this when you eat together and when you're eating together you're eating the bread and drinking the wine as a way of communing with someone who is not there Mm -hmm. um it's kind of like the first Zoom session, I guess. I can't believe I said that. <laughs> but, but is it not? I mean, it's something sure. that is not entirely real, I guess. Uh, the, 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 I mean, but I know the Catholics would disagree with me on that. But I would also disagree with you on that. But I, I, where I think you're right is um, to say it's, to say it's real doesn't mean it isn't bread and wine, right? <laughs> that this is, that this, if, if this is the body of Christ and it's the blood of Christ, it is also bread and wine, right? And that it is a form of being with Christ that is different somehow than what it will be, <laughs> right? It's not now the same as it is going to be. Um, which I think is good. I think that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I think that there is something so interesting. Again, to go all the way back to our beginning of the discussion, there's two sides to the word like in that piece of art. Nobody likes me. And I think that's also true of the, of the word friend. Um, mm, mm-hmm. Right. So the question is, like, what is a friend? What what really is a friend? 
And Christ called us friends. He said that we were friends. And, and what does it mean to be a friend with Jesus in a way that's, that's real? Um, especially since considering the fact that we've talked about, you know, what the difference is between a real interaction between another human being and interaction that's mediated through something. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it seems that, okay, we could talk about like, you know, what exactly, wh- whether this is consubstantiation, transubstantiation, or the real presence of Christ or whatever, whatever. The fact is there's some separation. You could call it time. You can call it space. He's, he's, uh, he's not there in flesh and blood. So, so what does it mean when he says that he is a friend? I am a friend. And, and how is that real? How, and mm-hmm. how do we define what real is in that context? Yeah, I mean, there's the verse about how there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. <laughs> um, and no greater love has a man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And so I think that there's something in real friendship, there is something inherently sacrificial that there's sacrifice that's made. Um, and you mentioned the the single story earlier. And I was talking, because I was talking with my students about that TED Talk, The Danger of a Single Story, today. And we talked a little bit about how when you really know and love your friends, you know that there are many good things about them and you also know the bad things about them and you love and care about your friend anyway and that's a form of sacrifice is that this is a person you truly care for and that means really knowing them and i think that the thing that social media makes it difficult to do is to truly know a person because the minute that they're annoying (laughs) the minute that you see the bad side of them you can log off, right? You can go away. You can curate the things that you see. You usually don't, though. <laughs> <laughs> sure, that's fair. But you can you can curate the things that you see to be self-serving, right? That's the thing, is it can be narcissistic. <laughs> you can only look at the things that entertain you. Um, or you can be sacrificial and you can truly know people. And I think that you can do that through social media, but I think it's a lot harder. Right, right, right. But the question is, what did Christ mean by friend? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that that is the question. He wasn't he clearly wasn't just friending us. So, it had to mean something else. Well, I just talked about how friendship means sacrifice. What did Christ do? I mean, what does it mean? What does it mean to be a friend with someone that you are not meeting face to face with and having that be the realest friendship that you could ever have? It's like your life, my life is based off of a relationship with a person that I have not met in person. And that's, I mean, for me, that's reality. That is the realest thing to me. Um, but then I talk about, you know, well, you know, face-to-face, it's more important, 
Paul talks about face-to-face, right? I, I, he's so tired of writing letters. I just want to meet pros to pros, I think is the actual Greek, you know, face-to-face. This is so important to me. Face-to-face. To be face-to-face with somebody. As opposed to, that's pre- preferable to meeting over some mediated space. And yet the realest thing, the thing that I base my life on, I'm, there's something mediating in between. There is, there is a separation there. And yet that, that is ultimate reality for me. I mean, how do we square that? What's, you know? It's a dilemma. (laughs) A social dilemma. (laughs) (laughs) Well said. Well said, my friend. Well said, amigo. (laughs) Thank you, thank you. Well, uh, thank you for not solving the problem. We will continue to discuss this dilemma (laughs) on a future podcast. (laughs) Maybe we'll solve it someday, but not today. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for listening, everyone. We'll see you in in a couple weeks. We don't know when, but sometime. We'll be back. Thanks for listening. (laughs) You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by STOA alumni. You can subscribe to our podcasts wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com or write to us at unreliablenarratorstoa at gmail.com. This podcast is produced by Raymond Dokopil and Sophie Klomperens, and our theme song is New Moon by Caleb Klomperens. In our next episode, we'll be discussing the song Bridge Over Troubled Waters by Simon and Garfunkel. Until then, friends, if you're looking for the tree of knowledge of good and evil, just take another bite out of the Apple logo. What? We can't say that. That's too cringe. Fine. You do it. Okay, I will. Until then, friends, get off TikTok. Get on our Instagram page. That was worse. Shut up. I know you can see something inside the one part of me.